All right, well, let me invite you to grab your Bibles and turn them open to Ephesians chapter 2, to the passage just read for us. And as you're finding your way to Ephesians chapter 2, let me voice a prayer for us as we get ready to dive in. Heavenly Father, as we open up our Bibles, would you open up our hearts to receive what you would have for us in its pages? We ask that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher, our counselor, our guide tonight. We pray that the Holy Spirit would lead us to find hope in life change in Jesus. God, we pray that you would um, speak in a way that would be undeniable, uh, that we would not be able to resist or turn away from, but would you capture our mind's attention and our heart's affections with the truths of your scriptures. God, would you do this for us now? In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I spent the early years of my childhood in a, a small town in southern Louisiana, and it was a railroad town, and the main railroad track just kind of ran right through the heart of town, and it actually separated the white neighborhoods from the black neighborhood. And my, so the town was literally divided along racial ethnic lines, and no doubt that decision at some point in time was influenced and inspired by some degree of racial prejudice. And, and I didn't realize at the time how common that was in towns and city, all, cities all across our country, that we tend to put physical barriers between ourselves and between those, with those who are unlike us. So, well, my house rested right next to those railroad tracks. And so in the middle of the night, these trains would rush by, and they would come by so fast and so ferociously that they would shake my walls and wake me up in the middle of the night. And, but since my house was so close to the tracks, I'm very grateful for parents who gave me the freedom to play on both sides. I remember being one of the only kids who could do that. One of my closest friends during that time was an African-American kid named Corey Carter. And since he couldn't come across the tracks for reasons, again, that I did not understand at the time. I, I moved in his direction. I would cross the tracks to hang with him. And together we would bond over our shared love and our shared enjoyment of basketball and baseball and the various things that we enjoyed doing together. Well, after fifth grade, my family moved a little further north in the state of Louisiana to a, to a little larger place. And when we arrived, I initially attended a private school. And I remember walking into that school one day and looking around and not seeing any black classmates. And one afternoon, I was waiting outside the school for my mom to come pick me up, and I turned to one of my classmates, and I asked him where the black kids were. Well, to my surprise, he responded with a racial slur, and then he went on to explain that those kids did not belong at that school. And I remember being infuriated and hurt because the moment he said those things to me, my friend Corey's face popped up in my head, and and I got angry, I got mad, and my mom soon pulled up, I got in the car, and I just began to fume and spew towards her all that just happened, letting her know how I felt and how angry I was. And, and I insisted in that moment on going to a different school as soon as possible. And my parents were, again, gracious and kind enough to honor my request, and they let me transfer schools later. But that exchange just jarred me. It floored me because it was my first conscious and explicit experience with what's called racism or racial prejudice. Now, of course, racial prejudice is not confined to the state of Louisiana, and it's not confined to the southern region of the United States. Racial prejudice has, divides people in every region of our country, and it has done so in every era of our history. But unfortunately, sometimes that fact is is too often denied or too often ignored by those like myself who make up the 
racial majority in our country. Nevertheless, the sun does not cease to shine just because clouds may block it from our vision. The sun does not cease to shine simply because we choose to gaze at the ground. So denying something or ignoring something doesn't change anything. As Christians, we should be sober-minded enough to think about this. As Christians, we should not be surprised by these dynamics in our country. I mean, fundamental to our worldview. Being followers of Jesus who love the scriptures and trust in the gospel, who recognize our need for the Savior, we believe in something called sin. And one of the ways that sin expresses itself in a fallen world is through racial prejudice. And this dynamic in the world that is isn't confined to black-white relationships, Racial prejudice exists within the Mexican community, the Polynesian community, the Asian community as well. Years ago, I traveled to North Vietnam to provide theological training to a group of underground house church pastors, and most of the pastors there were part of an ethnic minority group within that country. And this group lived in the mountains outside of the capital, and and due to their ethnicity, they didn't share the same privileges or the same protections as those who made up the country's ethnic majority population did. And so there were some pastors of that ilk who were able to come to the training, and they did so freely. But the minority pastors, they, they had to sneak into our facility. We had to sneak them into the city. Then we had to sneak them into the facility where we were hosting the training. And then for eight days, they couldn't leave that building. They slept on the pews because they were not free to move about the city of Hanoi and And we had to bring meals in to them because of the racial divide, the racial prejudice, the hostilities that existed within that country. You see, a common way that sin expresses itself throughout the world is through racial prejudice, through suspicion of the other. And as we acknowledge that, and we just kind of voice that tonight, I want you to know that no group is better equipped to deal with that reality than the church No group is better equipped and empowered to confront something like racism than the church. In fact, one of the reasons Jesus died, one of the reasons Jesus died on the cross was to reconcile races in the family of God. That was one of his primary goals and ambitions when he went to the cross was to reconcile the races in the family of God. This is what Ephesians chapter 2 says. Verses 11 through 22 is driving towards. And it's a passage that deals with racial prejudice to some degree that existed within the first century. Because within the first century, there was a huge gap, a huge divide between the Jewish peoples and the non-Jewish peoples who are referred to in the Bible as Gentiles. Now, the word Gentiles translates a Greek word from which we get our English term ethnicity from. They are the ethne. They are the nations, the peoples of the world. And and there was a huge divide between the Jewish people and the non-Jewish people in the first century. We know this because many Jews believe that the Gentiles, anyone who was non-Jewish, that there was a common saying that they were created to simply fuel the fires of hell. There was another motto that circulated among them, the best of the serpents crush, the best of the Gentiles kill. Many Jews refused to assist Gentile women in childbirth because they did not want that line, that lineage, those ethnicities to be fruitful and to multiply, so they would not assist in Gentile women giving birth. But then on the flip side, there was similar hostility and similar, similar animosity 
in the hearts of the Gentile peoples of that era. They had their issues as well. Plato, for example, said that all non-Greek peoples, which included the Jews, were his enemies by nature. And there was a historian by the name of Roman Livy who confirmed this in his day, saying, the Greeks wage a truceless war against people of other races, against barbarians. So that certainly sullied their relationship with the Jewish people, with the Jewish ethnic people. So Jew-Gentile relations were, were rough. They were characterized by much hurt and hostility, yet God in his wisdom and God in his grace had the audacity to design the death of Jesus in such a way that it would reconcile the races. He would design the death of Jesus in such a way that would bring Jew and Gentile together to form a family, to create the church. And in his wisdom, he would say, this is how my grace is going to be made visible to the watching world. It's gonna be made visible when the world sees racial reconciliation happening in the church. When races are reconciled in the family of God, that broadcasts the grace of God to the watching, watching world. This is what our passage is getting after. Look at verse 11. Notice how it begins. Verse 11, it says, so then remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human Hands. Now, he's taking up this topic of circumcision, which makes guys squirm, but it's something very special to the Jewish identity because circumcision signified for the Jews that they had a unique relationship with the creator, a relationship that traces its origin all the way back to the calling of a man named Abraham in the Old Testament, where God called Abraham, ironically, out from among the ethnic peoples, the Gentile peoples. He called Abraham out by his grace and said, hey, I'm gonna start a special relationship with you. And I'm gonna bless you and I'm gonna bless those who come out of you and, and I'm gonna bless all of you so that you will be turned and be a blessing to the rest of the nations. And so God set up this covenantal relationship with a guy named Abraham and he said in the sign or the marker of this relationship that's gonna be passed down from generation to generation will be this thing called circumcision. So when they thought about circumcision, what should have happened is that the Jews should have been humbled They should have been humbled by the fact that God would be so kind to move in Abraham's direction in the way that he did, and he would establish this covenant with Abraham, giving him promises, giving him blessings. That should have humbled the Jewish people, but over time, it did nothing but make them proud because circumcision became a a source of boasting, and they proudly heralded in the first century, we are the circumcised, you are the uncircumcised. Another way of saying that we are the accepted, you are the rejected, we are the wanted, you are the unwanted, we are favored, you are not. And so Jewish people would throw that label around, referring to the Gentiles as the uncircumcised. Sociologists tell us that we give nicknames to those that we love. My daughter, Adeline, who's three years old, we call her Teacup. Uh, Her middle name's T, which is, she's named after her Vietnamese mother-in-law, and and she's also the smallest of the three. She's kind of the runt of the litter, and so she's a little teacup, and we call her that because we love her. But sociologists also say that we give nicknames to the people that we hate. And it's clear that Jews hated Gentiles, and they labeled, labeled them the uncircumcised. That's not a particularly clever nickname, but it was condescending nonetheless. In some ways... In some ways, it was a racial slur, not entirely unlike, not entirely the same, but not entirely unlike what my classmate uttered in the sixth grade. So I want you to think about verse 11 really hard. You'd think if Paul's writing this letter to promote unity in the life of the church, 
between Jews and Gentiles who've come to faith in Jesus, if, he was, if that was his goal, if that was one of his agendas in writing this letter, you would think Paul would be wise to ignore what Jews used to call the Gentiles. Just ignore that label, ignore the history of hostility that existed between the Jewish and Gentile people. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that because he knows that ignoring what's been done in the spirit of sinful ethnic superiority doesn't serve the reconciliation of the races. So he writes in verse 11, I want you to remember you were called this, and I want you to remember that you were called this by them. And as they were remembering that, no doubt the Jewish Christians would remember that they were the ones who called them that. Verse 11 is a tough verse because it uncovers a lot of hurt and hostility that this diverse group of Christians have brought into the church. Paul's saying, we're gonna deal with the baggage that all of you have. And this is basically the makeup of every church. Every church is filled with people who bring baggage into its community. We all bring baggage into the church. We all bring issues into the church. We've all been hurt by people, and that carries us into the church. We've all hurt people, and we carry that into the church. And when we come into the church, we find ourselves in a community with those that that either we've hurt or who've hurt us, or maybe we find ourselves in in a community surrounded by maybe their representatives and people who remind us of those who hurt us or people who remind us of those that we used to hurt. That's the makeup, the messy makeup of the church. And so the question becomes, how do you experience any sense of harmony and healing if you know that we have these hurts and these hostilities that are present among us, that are present within every local church? How do you experience healing and harmony? Well, you don't experience it by ignoring it. You don't experience it by ignoring what's real about hurt and hostility. But at the same time, you don't experience healing by refuse, uh, one, you don't ignore it, and two, you refuse to perpetuate it. You refuse to carry it forward. You refuse to use language in hurtful ways. You refuse to seek vengeance against those who've hurt you. You refuse to conceal the ways that you have hurt others. Instead, you confess and you disclose and you seek forgiveness. In other words, you and I walk in the light together. Because it's only in the light where life flourishes. Life dies in the dark. In the light is where grace is made visible. In the light is where healing, harmony, and unity is found. So what we do in our church is we don't sweep hurts and hostilities under the rug. We don't pretend that they do not exist. We don't stick our head in the sand to to ignore that which is real about the human experience in a a fallen world. Instead, we bring them into the light and we deal with them. We address them in a very similar way that Paul addresses them in this passage. And notice what he does. He addresses this, this, but then where does he go? He goes straight to the cross of Christ. He's calling everybody's attention. Yeah, these are the hurts. These are the hostilities that once existed between Jews and Gentiles. Now I want you all to go together to the cross because the cross is where all of this is healed. At the cross is where all of this is covered. At the cross is where all of this is dealt with in the style of reconciliation. This is exactly where he goes in the next sentence. He says, at that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promises, uh, the covenants of promise without hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you were, who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
You see, Paul's affirming something that was very true about the Israel, the Israelite people, the Jewish people. The Jewish people did share a unique relationship with God. They shared a unique relationship with God, one that was unlike any other people group or any other race or any other ethnicity or even any other nation experienced before Jesus. And when God chose Israel to be his people, when he made that covenant with Abraham, he did so not because he was necessarily showing partiality to Israel, and he chose them not to the exclusion of the surrounding nations. He chose Israel with the expectation that Israel would serve the nations, that they would love people who were not like them. In other words, Israel was supposed to be a funnel. They were supposed to be blessed by God, and then those blessings of revelation, of covenant promises, of the reality of who God is, of the hope of a Messiah, all of those blessings were to flow through the people of Israel to the surrounding nations. Israel was to be a funnel, but rather than being a funnel, they became a sponge, and they just soaked up the blessings of God. They just soaked up the promises of God. They just soaked up the hope of the Messiah that was to come. And it wasn't flowing from them to the surrounding nations. And over time, they no longer looked at other nations with compassion and hope, but they looked at other nations with contention and hostility. But then came Jesus. And Jesus changed everything. Whereas Israel failed to be that funnel, Israel failed to bring the blessing of God to the nations, Jesus came. And he succeeded where they failed because Jesus came in love for those who were far from God. And he did something for his people that would change everything. He would shed his blood on the cross. And in so doing, turning circumcision into a moot point. So that now those who are not physically circumcised can be brought near to God. They can become a part of the family. Gentiles can know God as their father. It was a remarkable reality, a new era that Jesus ushered in. Now, the story of this happening shows up in the book of Acts in Acts chapter 11. There's this moment where the apostle Peter is standing before a a Gentile audience, a non-Jewish audience, and he stands before them and he shares the gospel with them. And as he is speaking the gospel to them, we're told the Holy Spirit comes upon them, filling everybody up. And it was a remarkable moment. It was kind of like another Pentecost, very similar to what happened in Acts chapter 2 amongst predominantly Jewish people. That's what happened in Acts chapter 11 for non-Jewish people. But as Peter was communicating this message and all of this was going down, there was a group of Jewish people referred to as the circumcision party who were suspicious of that whole event. They weren't supportive of what just happened because the circumcision party, they basically believe, look, we do think that Jesus is the Messiah, but if a non-Jewish person wants to come to him and trust him for salvation and know him as the Messiah, that non-Jewish person must first become Jewish before they get to Jesus. They too must be circumcised. They too must give themselves to the regulations of the ceremonial law that is laid out in Moses' writings in the Old Testament. That was their perspective. That was their thought. But after this event, things began to change because Peter, in conversation with them, he would ask this question. He said, if then God gave them the same gift that he also gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, how could I possibly hinder God? When they heard this, they became silent And they glorified God, saying, so then God has given repentance resulting in life even to the Gentiles. 
that Jesus ushered in a new era for all ethnic peoples, Jew and Gentile alike. He simplified the equation so that all peoples might come to know God as their father and join his family, simplifying the equation, saying, look, you can approach God not through law, not through ceremony, not through regulation, not necessarily through command. You're going to approach God by grace through faith. I'm simplifying the equation so that repentance and faith becomes the response given to anyone who wants to know God in this way. So Jesus ushered in a new era, and what we're being cued into in light of what Paul's saying is that more powerful than what's been done to us and more powerful than what's been done by us, more powerful than all of that is what's been done for us. This is why Paul can address it in verse 11 and then run to the cross saying, look, More powerful than all of that is what Jesus has done for you, and that's exactly where he goes next. Notice what he says. He says, for he, that is Jesus, is our peace, who made both groups, Jews and Gentiles alike, he made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations, so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who are far away, that is, the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, the Jewish people. So here he says, okay, there were two groups of people. There were Jews and Gentiles. And he affirms a dividing wall of hostility existed between them. Now, what's interesting is that this dividing wall of hostility is described as being the law which is quite strange, and it's important for you to understand as you think about this that that the problem Paul's addressing here isn't with the law per se. It's not that the law was inherently hostile or the law was inherently sinful or evil. We know this because in Romans chapter 7, verse 7, Paul asks the question. He says, is the law sin? And then he answers it rhetorically, absolutely not. So the problem wasn't with the law per se. The problem was, was with the people it was given to. The problem was that God's holy law was given to sinners and sinners couldn't handle it. The law wasn't doing what it was designed to do in their hearts because their hearts were wayward. Their hearts were disordered. You see, peppered all throughout the law, as you read through, let's say, the book of Deuteronomy, and you just kind of trace through that book, reading about God's law and his people, Peppered all throughout there are appeals for God's people to serve as a light to the nations. They are to be a light to the nations that God sought to attract all peoples to himself through the way of life lived by his people who were to carry out the law. That's what Israel was to do. But instead of doing that, the Jews started to despise the Gentiles. They began to label the Gentiles. They began to refer to them as unclean people, and they would appeal to God's law in order to justify hostility in their hearts towards other peoples. And the law wasn't, provided, wasn't providing a source of hope for the peoples. And so what happened is the Jews viewed the Gentiles as a different kind of people to whom they were superior. They said, we've got the law, we're better than you. God revealed himself to us, we're better to you. That's essentially what was happening, and that type of thing happens all the time. Because what often divides us from one another are the things we like most about ourselves. What often divides us from one another are the good things about us. We tend to take the best things about ourselves, our race, our culture, our customs, our history, 
And we become so proud of them that we use them to boast up or to boost up our sense of identity. And we take the best things about ourselves and we build little platforms for us to stand on. And the moment we stand on them, we're able to look down on those around us. We can look down upon those who do not have what we have or do what we do, those who are, in a word, different from us. This is kind of how all of this works. This is how racism works. Think about it this way. If, consider you have a person who is proud of being rich. You know a person who's proud of being rich isn't simply proud about being rich. A person who's proud about being rich is proud about the fact that they are richer than someone else. It always occurs in that comparative exchange. Or you consider someone who's proud about being beautiful and they love the fact that they're beautiful. They're not just proud about being beautiful. They're proud about being more beautiful than someone else. Sin has so disordered the human heart that our strengths become dividing sources of hostility between us and those who are not like us. This is where racial prejudice is rooted. This is where racial prejudice is found. And this is what happened with Israel. The law was good, but they were bad. And, but they began to get cocky because God gave them the law, and they began to elevate themselves above those around them in hurtful, hostile kinds of ways. But notice, Jesus' death on the cross was designed to change all of that. In the very next phrase, you see that Jesus tore down the dividing wall of hostility. He removed any ground that they had for boasting. He revealed, he said, look, all that you are boasting in is moot. All that you are boasting in is not worth boasting in. He's torn down the dividing wall of hostility. Now, as Paul is writing this letter to the Ephesians, there was a literal wall standing in the Jerusalem temple, a literal wall that stood that stood in the Jerusalem temple excluding the Gentiles. Josephus, an ancient Jewish historian, he talks about how attached to this barrier at different intervals were messages written in both Greek and Latin telling Gentiles not to come any further than where they were allowed or lest they would be put to death. And so the temple kind of projected that hostility. It projected that message out. There was no context for it. There was no explanation for why. It was just a straight up, hey, don't come closer or you die. It wasn't a hospitable temple in that sense. Now, that temple was destroyed. It was torn down in AD, 70 AD, just as Jesus had prophesied and predicted. But what Paul's talking about here, he's just drawing an analogy there, saying that there was, all, there was a dividing wall of hostility in the heart of my people. And I died to destroy that hostility, to tear down that wall. That's what I did on the cross. So he says there, Jesus made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations, saying, I'm going to simplify the equation. I'm going to make it in such a way that no one could boast in following my commands. No one can boast in following the law's regulations. I'm just going to simplify the equation so that everyone is saved by grace, so that everyone has equal access to the Father by coming to the Father through me. This is what Jesus is doing. And so he tore down this dividing wall of hostility, that is, the things that Jews boasted in, circumcision, Sabbath-keeping, food re regulations, these pillars of Jewish identity, all of it was rendered moot by the cross. And you got to think about what this means, because that means that Jews who became Christians, they were to learn how to no longer find their identity in what makes them different from the Gentiles. They weren't to live their lives comparing and contrasting themselves with those who were different from them. They had to learn that. They had to grow in that. Gentiles who became Christians, they would not be pressured into becoming Jewish. Instead, both Jews and Gentiles would find their identity in Christ. That's where everything changes. 
because Jesus sought to create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put hostility to death. He's saying in Christ, our differences no longer define us. They no longer serve as the source of our identity, which can lead us to feeling superior to other people. And the flip side is also true. It can lead us to feeling inferior to other people. But Jesus says, no, not in me. In me, I'm making a new humanity. In me, I'm creating a new people. In me, I'm doing something altogether different so that we learn to find our identity in Jesus and we stand on Jesus together, shoulder to shoulder, looking down upon no one and in a sense, looking up to no one. We're standing shoulder to shoulder in Christ and our differences no longer define us. Now, other identity factors are still present when a person becomes a Christian. Meaning when somebody becomes a Christian, they do not cease to be male or female, right? When a person becomes a Christian, they do not cease to be Jewish or Caucasian or African or Asian. But what this means is that those identity factors no longer define the person. They are important, but they are not ultimate. They are no longer reasons for division and hostility. And here's where this is going to become very challenging for some of us. Here's where I want you to really think well about these realities. And I want you to examine your heart on this this front. What this means is that you and I have more meaningful commonalities with Christians of different races than we do with non-Christians of our own. We have more meaningful commonalities with Christians of other races than we do with non-Christians of our own. This is what it means to be a part of the new man, the new people. This is what it means to belong to the church. So in Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, Paul would write, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, since you are all one in Christ, a new people, a new community. So let me ask you, who do you more readily identify with? Who do you more readily identify with? Do you more readily identify with people of your own race or people of your own faith? Do you more readily identify with people of your own race or people of your own faith? You see, what divided us from each other outside of Christ no longer does. It no longer does. And so when we step into this community, we learn how to relate to people who are not like us. We learn to look eye to eye at those who are not like us. We engage in real community, gospel flourishing, gospel saturated relationships. We engage in these dynamics, but we know that all of us are works in process on this front. That when we step into a community and we're surrounded by people who aren't like us and we're trying to walk out this new life with Jesus, there's some things we're gonna have to work through and there's going to be times when we don't get it right. There's going to be time when the old hostilities and the old uh, hurts begin to swell up and are kicked up in our hearts once again. I know this because I've read a story about the Apostle Peter, the same Peter who spoke to the Gentiles and affirmed Gentiles, yes, they belong to God. Well, later on in his life and later on in his ministry, there's a moment where Peter is hanging out at a dinner and he's seated at a table surrounded by Gentile Christians. And while he's sharing that meal with these Gentile Christians, some Jewish Christians walk in and something kind of turned in his stomach and he felt ashamed for where he was seated and he got up from one seat, he moved across the room and he sat down with the Jewish Christians. 
But fortunately, there was a guy named Paul there, and Paul was a friend of Peter, and he loved Peter enough to check him. He loved Peter enough to call him out on that lapse of judgment. And so he walks up to Peter, and he confronts him for turning his back on the Gentile Christians to side with the Jewish Christians as if they were somehow superior to those over on the other side of the room. And he says, look, I want you to know that your conduct is out of line with the gospel. Your conduct is out of line with the gospel. Anytime racial prejudice rises in our lives, whether it's loud or quiet, whether it's overt or subtle, it's always out of line with the gospel. And so we want to check ourselves and we want to be the type of community who can check one another, that we're free to do this, free to engage these uncomfortable hurts and these uncomfortable hostilities because of the life that we have in Christ. And we're living out this new identity, walking and standing on the reality of Jesus. Notice what else he says. He says that we are a new people in Christ who, because Christ came and proclaimed good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. And then in verse 18, this is where Paul begins to draw out the beauty of God's ethnically diverse church. He begins to draw out the beauty of these realities, and he speaks about the church with some of the most lofty language and some of the most lofty descriptions that you're going to find in the Bible. Three images that I'll call your attention to. The first image there is of a family. Verse 18, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And later he refers to the household of God, which is another family reference. He's saying everyone who is in Christ now has equal access to the Father, regardless of their race. Regardless of any of those factors, none of it matters. We all have equal access to the Father because of Jesus. We can all approach him. We can all sing to him. We can all pray to him. We can all hang with him. We can draw as close to God as we desire. This is the privilege that is awarded to everyone who believes in Jesus, trusts in Jesus. This is your reality. You belong to the family of God. And God's family is multi-ethnic. In God's family, he shows no partiality for his kids. He welcomes all his children to come to him equally, equal access to the Father, the first image of a family. The second image there is of a kingdom. Notice what he says next. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints. He's saying all who are in Christ, they share a loyalty and an allegiance to King Jesus. That everyone who is in Christ, they are part of the kingdom of God now, citizens of the kingdom of God. And that is a far more important citizenship than any other citizenship. Belonging to the kingdom of God is far more important than belonging to the United States of America. So we have to check some of these things in our heart because oftentimes in the American church, that gets flipped. And here's where I want to challenge your thinking once again. Here's where I really want to challenge your approach to these realities. This means that you have more in common. It means that you should show a deeper loyalty and a wider concern for Christian refugees and immigrants than you do to non-Christian fellow Americans. That you have more in common And your loyalty is more warranted. Your compassion is more called for for Christian refugees and immigrants than to non-Christian fellow Americans. Your citizenship in the kingdom of God is where you find your solidarity with the people of God in the world. This is why we think globally as a church. 
This is why global mentality is one of our core values because we recognize that, yes, we are a family, but we're a part of a much bigger family that is global, that is multi-ethnic, and we want to celebrate that. We want to be sensitive to that. We want to pay attention to what is happening to our brothers and sisters around the world so that we can pray for them, so that we can rally resources to care for them when they are hurting, to support them when they are struggling, recognizing that being Christians in America is a blessing. And when God blesses his people, he intends for them to be a blessing. The church should be a funnel, not a sponge, so that everything that God pours into our lives and into our church, it is to flow through our lives to bless the nations, and we show great concern and great loyalty to those who are in Christ all around the world. And so we have to consider where our deepest loyalty, our deepest allegiance, our deepest compassion resides when we think about what it means to live in this country and when we think about all the global happenings in the world right now. But then the third image you find here is a beautiful image of a temple. Notice what he says. He says, he just starts describing this spiritual temple and he says this spiritual temple is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In Jesus, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. He's saying, look, this spiritual temple is being built up on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. That's a reference to the scriptures, what would become the scriptures. We talked about this when we started our series in Ephesians. So the church is built upon the foundation of what God has revealed, about what God has promised, about what God is doing. So we have these writings that a church is built upon. That's our foundation. But notice he says something else about that foundation, that this foundation has a cornerstone. And this cornerstone is Christ Jesus. Now, if you've ever been a part of construction and building buildings, a cornerstone is the most important stone in a foundation. It's the first stone laid, and that stone will determine the trajectory of the building. That stone will determine the stability of the building. And if a cornerstone is poor, then the building will go sideways. And what I'm convinced is happening in the American church today is that there are many churches who've got sideways because they may be committed to the Bible, but they're not committed to Jesus. They read the Bible in such a way to reinforce their already preconceived ideas about what life in the world should be about, and they've forgotten the cornerstone. And when you read the Bible without getting to Jesus, you're not reading the Bible correctly. We are built upon the foundation of the scriptures, but the chief cornerstone of all of it is Jesus. And so when we study the scriptures, read the scriptures, commit to the scriptures, we do it in a way that exalts Jesus, that shows us Jesus. And when we get away from that, that's when the church gets sideways. That's when the church becomes uncomfortable when dealing with these hard realities. That's when the church begins to hide when matters of racism begin to get uncovered in our society and in our cities and in our communities. But what he's saying here is saying that everything ultimately rises and falls with Jesus, that this foundation and this cornerstone together, they guide the church and stabilize the church, everything rising and falling with Jesus, everything about our understanding of the Bible rises and falls with Jesus. But here's, but think about this metaphor a little bit more. So you have that foundation, the scriptures and Jesus, the scriptures and Jesus, but then he talks about these stones, And here's what you got to think. You got to think each Christian is a stone that is being built up in this temple, is a stone that's being added to this edifice. 
And this temple is being built up and stones are being added. Now, if you were building a temple, if you were building a building, and if you had different colored stones, chances are you're going to designate certain areas for certain colors. That's the white wall over here. It's a black wall over here, the brown wall over here. And you're just going to build the wall kind of the building that way because you love symmetry and you love sameness. And what happens is you're going to build the kind of church situation that we have in America, right? Where we have color-coordinated churches. You have the white church. You have the black church. You have the Asian church. You have the Indian church. And you get a situation quite like what we have in America today. But while I say that, I also want to be careful here because I do believe there's a difference between cultural prejudice and cultural preference as it relates to churches being planted and formed and nurtured. There is a difference between those two, and it is entirely appropriate for an ethnic group to form a church where they can preach and sing and fellowship in their heart language and understand one another. That is perfectly appropriate. We love that. We champion that. There's an Ethiopian church that meets in this building doing just that, and we celebrate that. We don't view that as them blocking out people who are not like them. We see that as them rallying around their heart language, which makes perfect sense for a church to do. And that type of thing happens all the time. So we want to be careful here because that type of decision is not the result of racial prejudice. It's not the result of racial division or anything along those lines. I experienced this a little bit last weekend when I had the opportunity to go and preach a retreat for the evangelical Chinese church. And I got to spend the weekend with them. And it was such a privilege opening the Bibles with people who were not like me and studying the same scriptures with them, celebrating the same Jesus with them, recognizing that we were all brothers and sisters and the bond that we have by the blood of Jesus ran far deeper and far richer than the blood that is pulsing through our veins. It was a remarkable time for me and I was super encouraged by it. So we want to affirm those dynamics and we don't want to assume that just because a church is predominantly one ethnicity that that's the result of racism. I think that's a naive assumption. But while I say that, I also want us to consider what Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. voiced. I think we need to consider his words in the last sermon he preached before he was assassinated. And he made this observation that's quite famous now. He said, we must face the sad fact that at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning, when we stand to sing, we stand in the most segregated hour of America. We have to contend with that dynamic. We have to explore why is that? And if we ever discover that that is the result of racial prejudice and racial hostility, we must check it. We must confess it. We must repent from it. We must deal with it. And so what I want us to do as a church here in the city of Seattle, I want us to work harder at mixing bricks. I want us to work harder at mixing bricks in the temple of God, in the church. I want us to explore what it would mean for you and I to cultivate ethnic diversity in our faith family. I believe we've seen God just kind of do this by his grace in our midst, but I also think we can take steps to cultivating it more intentionally and seeking it more uh, purposefully together because what's going to make grace visible to the watching world is when the world sees races reconciled in the family of God, when they see this tangible in local churches. And notice what else he says about the temple, he says. He says about the temple, that is the church, is where God's spirit dwells. I love this. He's saying when we come together with all of our differences and all of the things that may separate us, we share the same spirit. 
because the Spirit of God is in the church. The Spirit of God is filling up God's people. We are the place, the people where God's Spirit dwells in the world. I love this because it reminds us that the Holy Spirit is not just with me, he's with us. That the Holy Spirit isn't just about doing things in my life. He's doing things in our shared life. He's at work in the church. The collective family of God is where the Holy Spirit dwells. And so what this means is that when the world wants to know, okay, what is God like? What is his heart for? They should be able to look to the church to see it. They should be able to look to the church to see, oh, we, there's a God who loves all the peoples of the world. That there's a God who shows no partiality. There's a God who longs for all peoples to come to him through Jesus. They should be able to look at the church and see something about us that reflects the heart of God because the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God is dwelling among us. He is dwelling within us and we know that this Spirit does not discriminate. That this Spirit shows no partiality among the races. It's a remarkable, remarkable reality that we get to live into. Now, as we get ready to kind of wind this down, I want to encourage you to join me and to join our church in pursuing and nurturing unity in the midst of our racial and ethnic diversity. I believe each one of our expressions, West Seattle, Edmonds, and Fremont, each one of those expressions should reflect the diversity of their areas and the diversity of their regions. And so I want you to join me in pursuing this and calling this out, and we can do so in a few few ways. And I believe we can do this because racial reconciliation, quite honestly, can't happen outside of Christ. This is why the church is better equipped than any other group in the world to deal with this, to be honest about the hurts and hostilities of racism while at the same time providing healing and harmony and unity amongst diverse peoples. And so I do believe the church must lead the charge on this, and we do so by, one, repenting of sin that has expressed itself in either explicit or implicit racism. Whether it's expressed itself in loud ways in our lives or in quiet, subtle ways in our lives, we want to confess, we want to repent. We want to lead the charge on this by crossing ethnic barriers in pursuit of gospel-saturated relationships. Let me ask you, do you have a real relationship with someone who isn't of your ilk, someone who is not of your ethnicity? Do you have a real relationship with someone who's not like you? Are you crossing ethnic barriers in pursuing gospel-saturated relationships? We can lead the charge on this by embracing and serving all ethnic peoples in our church. Not everything we do as a family of faith needs to platform Caucasian Christianity. If we're going to pursue ethnic diversity in the life of the church, we need to think of creative ways to for people of different races and ethnicities to feel at home among us, to feel wanted by us, to feel fully present with us. They're not sitting back as spectators, but they are participating in the worship of God's people in the church. And I need your help to think through what this means. I don't have the answers to this, but I'm laying it out for you to pray through. I'm laying it out for you to think through, and I'm laying it out inviting you to share your ideas and to bring your ideas to the table so that we can embrace and serve all ethnic peoples in our church as best we can. But then another way we want to lead the charge on this is by speaking prophetically to racial prejudice that's present in our culture and that's present in various subcultures. The church is to be a prophetic voice in the world. That's one of the reasons why God put us here. 
That's one of the reasons why we have the scriptures, so that we can shed light on dark things. And so the church must not be silent when it comes to any issues like this that, are, that do not respect the Imago Dei and they do not lead people to racial reconciliation and harmony in Christ. So the church steps up and we speak prophetically. And then lastly, what we want to do together is we want to always exalt Jesus in the church for the world. We exalt Jesus in the church for the world because we do not believe racial reconciliation can happen outside of Jesus. We just don't believe true healing and true harmony, true unity can occur outside of Christ. So what we do in our pursuit of racial reconciliation is we exalt Jesus over and over and over again. And we recognize that what we share in common with other races and other ethnicities isn't our skin color, it isn't our cultural background, it isn't our heritage. What we share in common with them is our faith in Jesus, and Jesus is the magnet that draws us together. So we exalt Jesus time and time and time again because Jesus is the reason the church is better equipped than any other group in the world to deal with these realities. We've got Jesus And so we're going to rally around Jesus and see these things happen. So let me encourage you to meditate on a reflection shared by a guy by the name of John Piper. As we just kind of draw this to a close, John Piper was commenting on this passage in Ephesians chapter 2. He's a pastor in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and he's written some books that some of you have probably read. But listen to what he says. He says, let us dwell on this, that God ordained the death of his son to reconcile alien people groups to each other in the body in Christ. This, too, was the design of the death of Christ. Think on this. Christ died to take enmity and anger and disgust and jealousy and self-pity and fear and envy and hatred and malice and indifference away from your heart toward all other persons who are in Christ by faith, whatever the race. That's what God's, one of the reasons God designed the death of Jesus the way that he did. It's so races can be reconciled in the family of God. Let's pray.